Devjani is also a, a, a scholar of literature mainly. Um, she did a PhD in English. She used to teach in um, Bombay. Which, where did you teach? Women's. Uh, I in taught SNDT, at no? the Ria College and then the Women's University. Women's the University. SNDT, in, women's in, University. In Bombay for yeah. a long. She taught English literature, and then she did a PhD mm -hmm. in um, uh, in English literature from ANU, which was published in 2005 as um, under the title "Caste, Colonialism, and Counter Modernity," where actually. Because she also has Marathi, she looked at Dalit writing um, in, in Marathi and, and the, the politics of Dalit literature. And um, she's currently working on a world literature, uh, problems in world literature, but she's also edited uh, a volume on Gandhi called Rethinking Gandhi that came out from Routledge in 2007, and a volume on Edward Said called Edward Said, The Legacy of the Public Intellectual that was published from Melbourne University Press in 2007 too. Um, so, um, Debjani, welcome to Chicago for the first time. Thank you. Thank you, Dipesh. I'd, I'd um, uh, like to thank the South Asia Languages and Civilizations for hosting me here. I've, I have a lot of friends in Chicago, so it's an absolute pleasure uh, to, to come back. Uh, I've, I've been here in another capacity uh, earlier uh, last year at the peak of your winter, and it was uh, wonderful to, to experience your spring uh, this time round. Um, so it's, it's a real pleasure, and thank you very much for inviting me. Um, now, uh, m uh, the talk, I need to just signal two things before, before I launch into it. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, uh, really uh, um, a, a parallel uh, kind of an interest, a research interest. Currently, as Dipesh mentioned, I'm working on uh, my monograph is on, on a world literature project uh, post uh, the post-Cold War period. And um, language worlds in South Asia was a kind of is kind of a parallel interest that I'm I'm developing as I as I go go along. And uh, there was a commissioned piece from the Cambridge History that asked me to address this question, Cambridge History of Postcolonial Literatures, that asked me to address this, and that got me thinking about the problems of really talking about the language question in India and, and the language worlds in India. So this is a first go. It's really one of my first public goes at with this draft and I'd be uh, I'm, I'm apprehensive at one level because I do know the enormous amount of language and literary expertise in various language cultures within India but I'd, I'd be very very hopeful for uh, a lot of very productive and, and critical feedback so um, <clears throat> and and, and uh, Cassia asked me to uh, to to uh, j just just say a word about about clarify the scope of the paper, which I hadn't really done um, earlier. Now, uh, if there are any linguists in the room, I'm, I'm really not using the term language worlds uh, in the sense in which uh, it, 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 it circulates in a lot of linguistic theory. There's the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis about you know, language worlds. There was a, a, a Wittgenstein, post-Wittgensteinian kind of take on the limits of the world or the limits of the language. Now, I'm not going into <laughs> linguistic theory. This is more a cultural history of uh, uh, you know the evolution of language worlds from the 18th century on with European contact. So it's more written in the spirit of a world history rather than linguistic theory. That's, that's uh, the way I'd like to put it. Um, in February 2008, India's largest metropolis, Mumbai, witnessed the sordid spectacle of linguistic, <coughs> witnessed a sordid spectacle of linguistic and regional chauvinism. The discredited Shivsenic <coughs> Raj Thakare attacked India's top Bollywood star Amitabh Bachchan for showing more allegiance to his Hindi-speaking roots, Hindi roots in Uttar Pradesh than to his Marathi-speaking Mumbai home, the city that got Bachchan his stardom. The cause of this outburst was Bachchan's decision to fund a college for rural women in his Hindi-speaking home state, UP. Thakare and his rabid band of Marathi loyalists saw this as an act of betrayal. Their logic was simple and deadly. Bachchan's first loyalty should lie with Maharashtra and its largely Marathi-speaking people. They should be the recipients of his largesse. While Amitabh Bachchan refused to respond to the provocation, his wife Jaya protested this intimidation and even taunted Thakare at a film premiere by deliberately making a case for why she would speak in Hindi. She said, Hum UP ke log hain, isiliye Hindi mein baat karenge, Maharashtra ke log maaf kariye. Translated as, we are from UP, we will speak in Hindi. People from Maharashtra, please, please excuse us. Thakare went on the offensive, demanding an apology from Jaya Bachchan and even threatening to block all film releases that featured Bachchan and his family. 
Um, and of course, the, 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 the whole thing died down soon enough. Now, despite the avowed cosmopolitanism of Mumbai, linguistic chauvinism, it appears, is rife. For long-term residents of Mumbai, this episode will perforce trigger memories of other instances of linguistic intimidation that has troubled the metropolis since the very beginning of the formation of linguistically determined states in post-independence India. Previous victims have been Gujarati and Tamil-speaking dwellers of Mumbai. If the episode above is an instance of India's clashing language worlds originating in the rationalizing procedures of the modern state, the other unsettling episode I'm about to narrate is an instance of clashing literary worlds originating in the subcontinent's colonial history. And a lot of you are familiar uh, with, uh, with this episode. Um, in the introduction to his edited collection, The Vintage Book of Indian Writing, published in 1997, the 50th year of Indi independence, Salman Rushdie claimed the following. Prose writing, both fiction and non-fiction, created in this period, that is from 47 to 97 by Indian writers working in English, is proving to be a more interesting body of work than most of what has been produced in the 16 official languages of India, the so-called vernacular languages during the same time." Unquote. As if that were not provocation enough, in a plurilingual literary ethos battling the hegemony of English, Rushdie went on to assert that Indo-Anglian literature represents perhaps the most <laughs> valuable contribution India has yet made to the world of books." Unquote. Finally, he contended, quote, parochialism is perhaps the main vice of the vernacular literatures. Quote. In one rhetorical sweep, one of India's best-known literary celebrities in this era of global English had rubbished centuries of India's fable, linguistic, and literary plenitude and tainted its contemporary indigenous literary productions as inward-looking. Predictably, there was outrage, and Rushdie appeared to enjoy the storm, even claiming that what he said may have been improper, but it was not wrong. Uh, notwithstanding his absurd dismissal of the subcontinent's non-English literary oeuvre, at least two points extrapolated from his extraordinary pugnacity are worth reckoning with. One is the emergence, not seen since Sanskrit, of a critical mass of writing in an oratic tongue, English, in late modern India, phenomenally enriching, again not unlike the European discovery of Sanskrit in the 18th century, the nation's literary capital in the World Republic of Letters. The second is the anxiety of a post-colonial stance, keen to balance global connectivity with nationalism, localism, and nativism. I see the first as urging an inquiry, a foray into India's linguistic and literary historiography to productively situate the claims of Indian English literary production. The second, I contend, urges an analysis of the contestatory dynamics of linguistic world-making in post-independent India, of which the Bachchan Thakare quarrel is just one illustration, a dynamics in which the modern state is a key player. And my talk today in the 45-50 minutes I have um, uh, will try and address both of these tasks to some extent. Um, I'll begin with a, uh, 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 the first section will, is a thumbnail sketch of, sketch of the contemporary uh, language scenario. Currently, the nation state of India is home to four language families, the Indo-Aryan, the Dravidian, the Austroasiatic, and the Tibeto-Burman, of which the first two represent over 95% of languages spoken on the subcontinent. The 18 scheduled languages recognized by the Constitution of India come from these groups. The 96 other non-scheduled languages are spoken predominantly in the subcontinent's tribal population and by people from the seven states of the Northeast. These belong overwhelmingly to the Austroasiatic and the Tibeto-Burman families. These numbers, 18 and 96, by no means account for the total number of languages spoken in India. As studies of India's evolving language spheres have shown, the changing criteria for language identification in successive censuses has whittled down the number with each census. Thus, if the 61 census lists 1,652 tongues, the 81 census shows only 106. The 71 census commissioner was advised to drop all languages with less than 10,000 speakers. As for the 81 census, the criterion was no longer the mother tongue, but the main language spoken in the household. Further, many languages were grouped under a dominant language of the region, so that, for instance, Bhojpuri, Mewari, Avdi, Chhattisgarhi lost their independent status as languages and were grouped under Hindi. <clears throat> the irony here is 
that as we shall see later, if I have the time, I'll go into it some detail. Hindi itself evolved as a standard language towards the end of the 19th century from some of these variations and dialects as they are called now. Linguists have long, long recognized that spatial reorganization and territorial realignments play an important role in the evolution of language worlds. Thus the partition witnessed the splintering of language communities. Suddenly after 47, Punjabi, Sindhi, Urdu, Bengali became languages of two nations and have over the years developed multiple social, cultural and literary trajectories. As for post-partition India, as we know, all 18 officially recognized languages, and they're probably more now, have identities as regional languages, territorially demarcated by their concentrated use in specific regions of the country. In practice, English and Hindi are the two recognized national languages for their capacity to mediate the mutual incomprehensibilities of India's other multiple tongues. Where the impact of English in the context of India's multilingual literary production is concerned, it is but one recent development in the long history of the evolution of Indian literatures. Two other trans-regional languages, Sanskrit and Persian, uh, preceded English in their broad cosmopolitan mediation of indigenous language spheres across two millennia. For a while indeed in the 18th century, all three circulated as languages of power in varying degrees. Sanskrit's influence <coughs> was palpable mostly in intellectual, high cultural and literary spheres. Persian dominated political discourse as also literary production in the early decades of the century, while English gained influence in the sphere of trade, albeit in its ability to transact effectively with the vernacular language zones through mediators. While there is no doubt that British colonial practices in the 19th century led to a reconfiguration of linguistic and literary hierarchies, the reception of English in India was mediated at every stage by extant literary traditions in different parts of India. Literary scholars of pre-modern India have traced continuous trajectories of literary production, criticism and scholarship in more than 20 languages right until the arrival of Europeans on the subcontinent and the monumental work done by scholars of this university are well known, Sheldon Pollock's volume and this Muzaffar here and a whole lot of other very eminent scholars. Now from the beginning of European contact, these literary traditions played a significant role in determining the subcontinent's terms of engagement uh, with Europe. Since the 19th century, the various vernacular or regional literatures were in turn influenced by the introduction of English education. And interestingly, scholarship, or not, in, it's, it's, it's evident that, that scholarship is divided on whether to see this latter influence as a rupture in the development of India's 3,000 year long literary history, or whether to read the influence of English as but another significant strand in a continuous trajectory. And there's a bifurcation of scholarship um, uh, there. Whatever the val validity of these divided perceptions, it is clear that a historiography of India's language and literary worlds cannot be reduced to a narrative of the dominance of English over atrophying local literary traditions. <coughs> Anglicization may have led to a considerable attenuation of philological and historical expertise in various language traditions, as Sheldon Pollock has argued. But literatures in Indian languages continue to generate rich forms of comparative scholarship, even if inevitably the scholarship now displays signs of 400 years of confluence with European traditions. Further, in terms of reading publics in India, there are substantially more readers in Marathi, Hindi, Urdu, and Punjabi than in English. Bengali, Urdu, and Tamil have transnational reading and reception spheres across Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka, respectively. The dominance of English is evident primarily in India's global literary mediations and uh, literary and other mediations. In the national context, however, it is fruitful to see works in English and their relationship to Indian language literatures, not so much in terms of a polarization of global and parochial, as Rushdie does in the anthology referred to earlier, but in terms of their location along multiple sites of literary production, circulation, and reception within a polyglot culture characterized by urbanization, translation, and bilingualism. In what follows the rest of the talk, I address the two tasks I set for myself at the beginning, that is signposting key stages in a historiography of the subcontinent's language and literary traditions, and analyzing the impact of modern state making on conflicting language worlds, by picking up the story of India's language question from 18th century onwards. <coughs> The mid-18th century is historically recognized as the beginning of British colonial rule in India, 
With the victory of the East India Company, led by Robert Clive of the Nawab of Bengal at the Battle of Plassey in 1957, this could lead one to conclude that the English language too consolidated its hold on India around the same time. After all, the political victory of the East India Company was preceded by at least one and a half centuries of subcontinental contact through trade and requisite interlingual skills that it demanded. Scholarship on 18th century language and literary spheres, however, presents a far more complicated picture. 18th century in, uh, India constituted a unique zone of amalgamation, coexistence, and only occasional conflict between three transregional linguistic spheres that have marked the coordinates of India's literary history since antiquity, Sanskritic, Persio-Arabic, and then Anglophone. Sanskrit, Persian, and English each manifested its cultural and political influence over this century in varying degrees generating in the process radical changes in linguistic and literary trajectories of the vernaculars and creating composite multilingual and intercultural domains that would come to fruition in the early years of the 19th century and then morph into more anglo-determined forms of acculturation. <clears throat> the arrival of the British East India Company on India's shores for the first time in 1608 is historically marked as the arrival of the English language on India's coastal zones. But recent scholarship has retrieved evidence of the use of English on the subcontinent at least two decades prior to the formation of the East India Company. And some of you would be familiar with this story, but I'll just briefly uh, narrate it for the purpose of this paper. The story revolves around the escape of a Roman Catholic priest, Father Thomas Stevens, from Elizabethan England. He initially sought refuge in Rome in 1578 and then persuaded his superiors to send him to the south central coast in western India to join a group of Jesuits. He arrived in India in 1579 and settled down in Salset and then Goa, where he went by the name of Father Estevam. The first public records of his English language usage appear in a Portuguese trial of four English merchant adventurers in 1583 by Father Stevens or Father Estevam was called upon to act as translator and intermediary. The four were subsequently released by the Portuguese. While there are no records of three among them, the fourth merchant, Ralph Fitch, also the only one to find his way back to England in 1591, eventually compiled an account of his travels in India and the East. It can well be called a proto-travelogue, the first of its kind on India by an English language speaker, and it was published in 1599 in Richard Hakluth's Principal Navigation, Navigation Voyages, Traffics, Discoveries of the English Nation. A sizable number of Englishmen settled in India after 1660, when Charles II conferred on the merchants of the East India Company the power to, quote, be a state unto themselves and act accordingly whenever east of the, wherever east of the Cape of Good Hope, unquote. The gradual control of trade by the British East India Company through the 17th and early 18th centuries saw the seal of approval from a successive line of Mughal emperors, beginning with Jahangir, saw the establishment of distinctly English zones of cultural contact in the Malabar and Coromandel coasts, coastal regions, and to some extent in the presidency towns of Bombay, Madras, and Calcutta. Uh, Vinay Dharwadkar, in fact, have, has written in detail about the zones of contact uh, there, which included those generated by marriage, employment, kinship bonds, religious conversion, and finally, friendship and social relations. The English language was still far from ascendant in its influence across the rest of the subcontinent. Its use was primarily manifested in genres such as personal letters, epistolary travelogues, and travel writing, all emanating from merchants, of officials, and adventurers who came to India's shores in the wake of, East India, of the East India Company. Persian and Sanskrit continued to inform the socio-political and cultural domains. All through the 18th and early decades of the 19th century, Persian and Arabic were the vehicles of knowledge-making and culture. Arabic as the language of Quran and Persian as the language fostered by the Mughal rulers for all modes of literary and cultural expression were the undisputed languages of power and sociocultural influence and mobility. All who had educational aspirations and wished to be part of the Mughal administrative cadres had to master both, irrespective of language, irrespective of religion and caste. Further, Persian was the primary conduit to literary and cultural refinement, 
Almost all Mughal emperors since Akbar actively patronized Persian literary figures and were themselves immersed in the poetic sophistication of its literary works. As Muzaffar uh, Alam here notes, to take an interest in Persian arts and letters was considered a mark of refinement and sophistication. No monarch, however brilliant his record of military achievement, could aspire to fame in, a, in the world of culture at home and abroad without generous patronage to Persian poets and scholars." Unquote. The secular tradition of Persian poetry, especially its far reach into pre-Islamic Persia and its ability to be a vehicle for a liberal, tolerant accommodation of diverse cultural influences, especially resonated with the Mughal administration's own attempts to mediate India's cultural diversity. Scholars have noted how significant Persian was right from the 12th to the 18th centuries in enabling the development of literary cultures in the vernacular languages. The Islamic rulers from other regions in India, and especially from India's south, despite their commitment to upholding the dominance of Persian and Arabic, encouraged the growth of languages such as Kannada, Marathi, Telugu, and Dakani. Each of these showed evidence of Persian influence. Persian vocabulary, grammar, literary themes, and genres also found their way into Punjabi, Kashmiri, Sindhi, and even Urdu. Translation between Persian and these languages were wi was widespread, as were ad adaptations of classics. In fact, a very distinctive form of Indo-Persian literary repertoire, distinct from the Iranian Persian, developed over a period of five centuries due to these exchanges. And again, you know, we are all indebted to Muzaffar's scholarship on the details of, of uh, this <laughs> distinction between the Indo-Persian and the Iranian Persian repertoire. By the end of the 18th century, Persian was by far the language most frequently used in all spheres of knowledge, production, history, geography, astronomy, philosophy, theology, and lexicography. The College of Fort William, set up by the British in 1800 to inculcate a systematic study among the company's officers of India's various language and literary traditions, employed the largest teachers in Persians. The 18th century witnessed the continuing influence of yet another trans-regional linguistic and literary force, the Sanskritic. With the onset, the onset of Islamic rule in the second millennium and subsequently that of the British East India Company did not exactly erode the literary and cultural power of this magisterial tongue. Never the language of the common people in the 2,500 years of its living history, Sanskrit was unsurpassed in its embodiment of India's ancient India's refined aesthetic sensibilities, its literary and cultural wonders, and its sacral aura. Most Indian vernacular literary traditions emerged under its shadow. The Islamic rulers encouraged translations into Persian of its many literary, philological, theological, and epistemological treasures, and successive waves of Europeans could only marvel at its rich and complex history. With the consolidation of British rule, Warren Hastings officially recognized Sanskrit's superior cultural status and commissioned authoritative English translations of its key works. Thus, in 1776, saw the English rendering of Hindu laws by Halhead under the title The Code of Gentu Laws, and Charles Wilkins' translation of the Bhagavad Gita appeared in 1785. No doubt Hastings was impelled by motives of governance for he wished to maintain his autonomy from British Parliament by undertaking to introduce separate civil laws based on religious practices by Hindus and Muslims. Translations from both Sanskrit and Persian te texts were imperative to this goal. Nevertheless, his patronage of key Sanskrit translations was significant enough to initiate a critical mass of philological scholarship in the field. And again, a, a lot of us, I'm not going to go into the details, are familiar with the European enthusiasm for Sanskrit texts. We all uh, know George Forster, <coughs> um, uh, William Jones's um, uh, translation of Shakuntala and George Forster's translation of the same into German in 71, which heralded the era of German romanticism's discovery of Sanskrit. And then Gutter, Herder, they all played, paid peons to it. Now, from this enthusiasm for Sanskrit on the part of Western scholarship, we know, again, this is a history we know, that emerged disciplines such as comparative philology and Indology, the progenitors of contemporary linguistics and lexicography. Now, in most accounts of the rise of 19th century philology and linguistic theory, Sanskrit is seen as providing, at best, no more than a brilliant case study and a privileged site of raw data, and at worst, an antiquarian system of no relevance to 19th century knowledge making. Uh, uh, Foucault, for instance, in The Order of Things, 
where he, he does identify the discovery of language in 19th century Europe as the single most significant rupture heralding the onset of modern epistemology. But in doing so, he argues, and I quote, it would be false and above all inadequate to attribute this mutation to the discovery of hitherto unknown objects, such as the grammatical system of Sanskrit. <laughs> what changed at the turn of the century and underwent an irremediable modification was knowledge itself as an interior and indivisible mode of being between the knowing subject and the object of knowledge, unquote. <clears throat> Uh, Revati Krishnaswamy, in a recent essay on the emergence of linguistic theory in Europe, uh, takes on, um, of course, uh, Foucault and others uh, um, in this particular point, and argues um, that Sanskrit, in fact, also provided the metalinguistic, theoretical, and ideological apparatus for such theory, and was not merely a museum of ancient practices. Building her argument on five separate sites of analysis, poetics, epistemology, ethnology, linguistics, and the figure of the linguist, she traces the impact of the ancient science of grammar, Vyakarana, on key theoretical formulations of the European linguists, an impact that was gradually disavowed from the second half of the 19th century by philologists intent on Europeanizing the corpus of linguistic science. Krishnaswamy's contention is that 19th century Europe's exclusive claim to linguistic theory rests on a simultaneous appropriation and denial of colonized linguistic knowledge that constituted Sanskrit as a privileged yet safe object of antiquarian interest. Now, all through the 18th century, however, Sanskrit scholarship was particularly nurtured by various Hindu rulers and the aristocracy in Banaras, Mithila, Kashmir, Ravankur, and Tanjore. While the use of Sanskrit was restricted to exclusive enclaves of learning and scholarship, its wider impact was felt through the evolution of vernacular language and literary traditions, many of which drew from poetic forms and themes of the Sanskrit epics and the Puranas. Ethical and theological life worlds depicted in Ramayana and the Mahabharata were the main sources of inspiration for writers in many languages. So, for instance, the Atakatha form, which constituted the key texts of the Kathakali uh, plays and the dance tradition, were Sanskritic in formal and thematic orientation. And they were particularly nurtured during the re reign of the Maharaja Kartika Tirunal of Travancore. Other poetic and performative genres in Malayalam, such as Tullal, Skampu, Dutta, Kavya, were all inspired by Sanskrit aesthetic forms. Uh, <clears throat> and then there's in Telugu literature witnessed the continuous flourishing of yet another Sanskritic uh, verse form, the Sataka, literally a century of verse. This form first appeared in the particular linguistic region we currently identify as Andhra Pradesh in the 13th century. <clears throat> I'll just skip a little bit here and uh, because there's a lot of details. Uh, so the 18th century, in sum, uh, witnessed the evolution of India's vernacular languages and literatures under the influence of both Sanskrit and Persian. Um, towards the second half of the century, English continued to make inroads, but was far from consolidating itself as the subcontinent's dominant tongue. Now, if all through the 17th and 18th centuries, the subcontinental cultural scene was a mosaic of tongues at the confluence of these three large linguistic worlds, the 19th century witnessed the gradual consolidation of English and a dramatic shift under its influence in the developmental trajectory of modern Indian languages and literatures as we know them today. Uh, by mid-19th century, through various acts of parliament, English had also dislodged Persian as the language of governance and political economy. These might suggest a process of comprehensive colonial takeover and erasure of existing indigenous language traditions. What we have instead is a history of protracted debate, negotiation, and compromise on terms of their transformation under yet another trans-regional cosmopolis, this time that of English. Now, there is enough documentation to suggest that even the most imperial-minded of colonial actors, including the much maligned Macaulay, did not envisage English replacing mass education in the vernaculars. They were invested in the development of vernacular languages, but on less antiquated foundations than Sanskrit and Persian. English, they hoped, would provide that modernizing boost. As for the champions of India's classical heritage, they had supporters from among indigenous and British intellectuals alike, and of the latter, some some unlikely personages, such as John Stuart Mill. Um, Zastopil and Moir note in their preface to the Great Indian Education Debate that scholars have overlooked two critical sources on Mill's ad 
advocacy of Sanskrit and Arabic, and his opposition to Macaulay's rabid imperialist stance. They are an obscure 19th century journal and a handwritten manuscript in the India Office records in the British Library's Oriental and India Office collections. In his later dispatches, of course, J.S. Mill supported the filtration theory of education, where English would reach only a small proportion of the population, and this elite class would disseminate Western knowledge to the vernacular mass masses. What is intriguing about the celebrated debate on Indian education between the Orientalists and Anglicists from the 1780s to the 1820s was that it was not a simple polarization between the antinomian forces of indigenization and westernization. Both groups, in fact, saw the introduction of English education in India as inevitable. And ironically, many indigenous conservatives themselves petitioned for the establishment of institutions founded on English language education. And there are historians who have worked on um, such conservatives as Rathakanto Dev and others. The fundamental differences lay in the way they envisaged the nature of cultural amalgamation wrought by the forces of Anglicization and in the philosophical worldviews they brought to bear on their arguments. To put it briefly, the education debate symbolized a conflict between civilizational and utilitarian points of view. To the Orientalists, India's classical and Persio-Arabic heritage was rich and capacious enough to accommodate, transfigure, and even rejuvenate European knowledge forms. They favored a form of English education that could be grafted onto and enhance the already existing civilizational depth of India, represented by its classical Sanskrit heritage and a courtly Persian culture. They thus opposed an attitude that saw the introduction of English as a progressive world language that would ease out the supposedly moribund linguistic and cultural influences of India's pre-modernity. This latter was the worldview of the Anglicists, constituted mainly of Whigs, the Evangelicals, and the Utilitarians, who saw no practical value in India's classically inspired pedagogy and culture, and firmly believed in the ultimate efficacy of a modernized government of India through a westernized education system. The Anglicists were of the firm view that not only would English education enable the British to gain greater administrative ascendancy over the Mughals and enable a better reception of missionary activities, but that it would rejuvenate the Indian vernaculars through a process of transmission and osmosis. The political coordinates of the story, and especially in light of the eventual prevalence of the Anglicist position in the education debate, are well known. And here I enumerate, and I won't read them, but I'll just put it up here, only five of the most significant uh, um, uh, uh, moments of the debate. 1792, 1813, 1833, 1835, the Macaulay Minute on Education, 1838, Charles Trevelyan's on the Education of the People of India, and 84 Woods Educational Dispatch. These are some of the um, kind of the landmark um, tra tracts and charters. And, and uh, where, of course, uh, um, again, because of the familiarity of uh, most history students here, but the 1835 Macaulay of Education, uh, there is a lot that can be said about it. Um, I'll just very briefly um, um, say that it was the acceptance on 7th March 1835 by Governor General William Bentinck of the Minute on Education by Macaulay, President of the Committee on Public Instruction, recommending the formal introduction of English education. That was a single decisive moment in turning the tide against the Orientalist civilizational vision of an India, accommodative of both classical and modern knowledge forms. No doubt, as Astupil and Moore have argued, the Orientalists still managed to get some of their recommendations adopted in policies that were developed since the formal ratification of the minute. But since the Macaulay moment, the 18th century idea of India at the confluence of three weighty, world-making linguistic horizons vanished forever, and the subcontinent was comprehensively on a trajectory of modernization of its language and literary cultures under the tutelage of English. And rhetorically, it's an interesting document, uh, and uh, the minute marked this momentous shift in three strat strategic moves, e each of each drawing on utilitarian arguments, culturalist arguments, and governmental arguments, respectively. It's a very interesting document. Now, the fallout of these political and policy developments and the intersection at various stages with existing missionary, educational, and social reform movements were far-reaching. They generated an array of overlapping sites of reconfiguration of India's language and literary worlds throughout the 19th century. I wish to consider these in two, briefly in two phases, which I call for the sake of convenience, the pre-Macaulay phase from 1800 to 1835, and the post-Macaulay phase from 1835 to 1900. <clears throat> 
the pre-Macaulay, uh, the importance of uh, the pre-Macaulay phase from 1800 to 1835. Now, the importance of the year 1800 <laughs> can scarcely be underestimated in any history of India's language worlds. The fact that it was the birth year of Thomas Mac uh, Babington Macaulay is only a part of its significance. Of greater import is the establishment of the College of Fort William in Calcutta and the Serampur Mission Press, which for the first time had the wherewithal to print works in the Indian languages. All colonial agents, irrespective of whether they were East India Company officials, missionaries, or imperial policymakers, realized the value of not just mastering Sanskrit and Persian, but also the vernacular languages of the everyday worlds in different regions. Their respective goals of trade, governance, civilizational change, and spiritual transformation could not be achieved without access to means of communication. Hence, at the very turn of the century was established the Fort William College, and it went on to become a major site of scholarship in Indian languages, produced textbooks, compendiums, lexicons, grammars, and translations. These scholarly publications were themselves enabled by developments in print technology, which first came to the subcontinent with the Portuguese in the mid-16th century. Subsequently, the French and Danish missionaries established printing presses in the southern regions of Pondicherry, Trankabar, and Madras. 1973 saw the publication of the first English work in any Indian language, a Tamil translation of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. But it was the setting up of the Serampur Mission Press in 1800 by three Christian missionaries of the Baptist Mission, Joshua Marshman, William Ward, and William Carey, that is widely recognized by cultural historians as a landmark event in the history of India's print culture and its impact on the modernization of India's languages and literatures. Within a decade, the press grew into the greatest type foundry in Asia, for it had the wherewithal to make elegant types and fonts of almost all Eastern languages in the world. Its extensive printing program included almost all languages of India, and by one estimate between 1800 and 1832, it had published over 200,000 books in 45 languages. The spread of print technology spearheaded by the Srirampur Mission Press was responsible for the decline of centuries-old oral and scribal traditions. Along with innovations in the educational system and changes in the writer-reader relationship, it transformed the domain of literary production and scholarship. This period witnessed the emergence of a critical mass of prose genres that revolutionized Indian languages. Three types of printed publications were particularly influential. Pedagogical material, translations of the Bible, and tracts on socio-religious debates, second, and the third, newspapers and periodicals. These last two especially merit some attention. Among the clauses that make up the Sirampur form of agreement between Sirampur Press and the Baptist Mission is one that is explicit about its goal to translate the Bible into vernacular tongues. There are many scholarly accounts of the impact of this missionary commitment to take the Bible to the masses in their many tongues. One fascinating account that focuses on the ramifications of this phenomenon, specifically from the point of view of India's acquisition of English, is Srinivas Arvamudan's Guru English, South Asian language in a cosmopolitan, South Asian religion in a cosmopolitan language. Arvamudan places Bible translations at the intersection of theosophical, orientalist, and religious, religious revivalist discourses in the 19th century to account for the emergence of a trans-idiomatic register of English he calls Guru English, a distinctly South Asian form of English ingeniously coding the subcontinent's multiple spiritual worlds. Translations of the Bible into vernaculars, along with the printing and publication of newspapers and periodicals in Indian languages between 1800 and 1835, were critical developments in the history of Indian prose. As um, the uh, editor of uh, Sahitya Academy's History of Indian, the voluminous History of Indian Literature, Sisir Kumar Das notes, one of the earliest evidence of the influence of English on Indian language prose was seen in the newspapers. He also notes the experiments of journalists with vocabulary and syntax. Quote, there was a sudden influx of loan words, direct from Sanskrit and Persian, borrowings from English and neologisms. This helped the growth of technical words as well, thus complementing the efforts of textbook writers who were in need of new terminologies. The journalistic prose also made many innovations in syntax, such as the increasing frequency of reported speech, a feature borrowed from English and now naturalized in writing styles. However, unlike the history of the impact of print technology on the standardization of languages in Europe, many of the vernacular languages had already achieved levels of standardization in orth orthography and grammar much before the advent of print, and this is a remarkable 
kind of uh, phenomenon of the subcontinent. Uh, in the Indian case, the impact of English, coupled with translations from European texts and the spread of print, led to a, a reorientation of the vernaculars away from the elaborate and ornamental style and syntactical arrangements of Sanskrit and Persian towards a more robust, matter-of-fact, unembellished form, better suited for wider dissemination to multiple reception spheres with varying degrees of literacy. And this was most evident in newspaper prose. And there are many commentators on this uh, shift and this, this kind of proliferation of prose. Until the 18th century, really, verse was the dominant form uh, in, in which the language, the expressive form of the language. And there's this uh, Bengali intellectual, Pramatha Chaudhuri, said that what, what happened under the British was rhyme gave way to reason. And, um, and there are many other, uh, you know, such uh, quotes, some uh, it's about a certain irritation with the way the prose just took over and, and it was a whole new world, whole whole different register of looking at things. So journals and periodicals offered more substantive support for writers, allowing for greater freedom to innovate and experiment with styles and genres. Um, and uh, I'm going to skip a little bit here. Um, um, it's in interesting to note that some of the earliest makers of Indian prose, Ramon Roy, Ishwar Chandra Vidyasagar, Balgangadhar Bal Shastri, Jambhekar, Ananda Ram Dekhyal, Fuka, Raja Shiv Prasad, Nobin Chandra Re, Chinaya Suri were not literary figures, but scholars, educationists, and social reformers. Opinion columns by these public intellectuals and social activists featuring live issues of the day from diverse ideological perspectives created new pub reading publics and eventually constituted the crucible for a nascent nationalist consciousness that would blaze forth in the last decades of the century. <clears throat> this corpus of prose, combined with access to translations from European classics, paved the way for the evolution of the novel form and biography, the two creative genres that dominated literary output in the 19th and the 20th centuries. Just move quickly to the, uh, the post-Macaulay phase um, of from 1835 to 1900. Now, with the official endorsement of the Macaulay Minute, the Indian language scene would be irrevocably transformed. And there are three, th uh, three um, uh, uh, kind of efforts that the, the, the colonial government made uh, towards towards actively um, uh, undertaking a kind of a reshaping of the language worlds, and three of which bear particular mention. Increased state support for translations of not only English and European literary and historical classics into vernaculars, but also of Indian classical and Persian texts into English. Encouragement through prizes and commendations of creative efforts by writers in the various Indian languages, which led to the publication of some of the earliest novels and biographical works. And finally, though controversially, to the creation of a canon of good Indian literature through an elevation of India's classical heritage and a marginalization of more popular genres uh, considered morally unsuitable for a people already sunk into a state of intellectual and moral somnolence. Now, the fallout of these developments, these three, uh, has been long-lasting and oriented the subcontinent for the first time to the idea of a few nation-making languages of cultural and moral worth that would operate in tandem with their regional manifestations. So this was a radical topographical shift in political consciousness, a territorially circumscribed federalism of modern language making, distinctly different, not only from the production of new vernacular spaces in the second millennium, but also from the civilizational worldview of the Orientalists at the end of the 18th century, invested in an idea of India as a site of cross-fertilization of transcontinental languages and cultures. The emergence of Indian English, of Hindi and Urdu as trans-regional tongues demarcating a widening rift between Hindus and Muslims, and an imperial realignment of other vernacular tongues are all phenomena that can be attributed to this momentous shift during this period. The British were keen to minimize the diversity of regional languages for matters of administrative convenience, and accordingly granted official recognition to only a handful most exposed to the influence of English. Bengal was the first seat of colonial governance and experienced the earliest impact of British educational policies. Bangla thus trumped other languages of Eastern India and as early as 1836 replaced Assamese and Oriya in the law courts and schools of Assam, Assam and Orissa. Urdu replaced Punjabi Northern India and languages such as Konkani in India's west coast, already threatened by Portuguese influx before the arrival of the British, now faced further mar marginalization under the impact of Marathi, yet another tongue of import to British governance. 
Each hierarchical realignment was accompanied by written protests, now languishing in dusty archives, signaling, nevertheless, the linguistic ferment of <coughs> rivalry and accommodation that continues to characterize the language question of in, in India today. In this context, um, the colonial intervention in the historical dispute between the legacies of Hindi and Urdu merits a brief account. Historian Historians are in broad argument that it was not until the mid-19th century that Hindi and Urdu consolidated itself as two separate languages with distinct scripts. And it was not until the end of the 19th century that the cultural association of Hindi with Hinduism and Urdu with Islam began to solidify in the Indian imaginary. Hindi and Urdu had their origins in a composite literary continuum in northern India since at least the 14th century and were designated respectively as Braj and Avdhi literary traditions in Hindu-majority regions. And by a chronology of terms such as Hindvi, Hindi, Dilavi, Gujri, Dakani, Rekta, to designate a successive evolution of a northern lingua franca with a predominantly Persian Islamic influence. Sometime in the early years of the 18th century, these various strands coalesced to form language identical in structure, but only marginally different in sound and morphology, and which could be written in either the Persian script or the Nagri script, influenced by Sanskrit. Hindus and Muslims alike were at home in this composite linguistic domain, and its literary manifestations emerged from the pens of writers whose religious identity scarcely had any bearing on their choice of scripts. When the British first confronted this linguistically hybrid phenomenon, their taxonomic mindset could describe it only in terms of a disaggregation of its Hindu-slash-Sanskritic and Muslim-slash-Persian strands. The first evidence of this is seen in the efforts of scribes and translators at the College of Fort William, working under colonial authorities, hard put to create prose texts in Hindi, as ordered by their masters due to the absence of the genre in Braj and Avadhi. They used texts from the Hindvi continuum, excised Arabic and Persian words from them and replaced them with Sanskritized terms. A similar excision of Sanskrit terms occurred in the production of Urdu prose. Within a decade from within the precincts of Fort William was generated an entire corpus of prose in two distinct North Indian languages, Hindi and Urdu. Tarachand, one of the historians invited in 39 to give a talk at an All India Radio Forum on what is Hindustani, lamented, and I quote, Within a space of less than 10 years, two new languages were decked out and presented before the public at the behest of the foreigner. Both were lookalikes in form and structure, but their faces were turned away from each other. And from that to this day, we are wandering directionless on two paths. Unquote. Again, I'm skipping a little bit about the importance of Urdu there. And very briefly, how did English language navigate these cultural rifts and realignments through the 19th century? Did it succeed in realizing the vision of Macaulay, Trevelyan, and Wood to function as a nationally unifying cultural and intellectual force that would modernize the subcontinent? Scholars are divided on the nature and degree of its impact on indigenous literary and knowledge traditions. Urdu scholars, for instance, have noted the relevant irrelevance of English cultural influence on Ghalib, the renowned Persian and Urdu poet, who until 1857, until the mutiny, wrote within the long medieval tradition of Persian literature, renowned as much for its secularism as its romance with aristocracy. Gauri Vishwanathan in her book, uh, Mass of Conquest, in a chapter tellingly entitled The Failure of English, argues that the goals of introducing English education actually backfired. Though it did produce a bureaucratic and professional class to help the administration, its overwhelming effect, much to the dismay of colonial rulers, was the creation of a class increasingly conscious and critical of British oppression. Further, the impact of English along with the advent of print technology, the creation of new reading publics, and the receding of traditional forms of patronage affected each linguistic region differently. So it's difficult to make a case for the emergence of a unifying national <coughs> culture under British education and language policies. Nevertheless, few would dispute the role of English as the harbinger of Western education and modern literary world making, at least in the British presidencies. The exposure to an adaptation of Western literary genres was characterized by creative tension between the forces of the old and the new. The novel, poetry and drama all displayed signs of influence and experimentation with European and English classics, but they were by no means overdetermined by the colonial exposure. Perhaps the most significant import of English towards the end of the 19th century was the provision of the register for the Indian intelligentsia to articulate a nascent nationalist vision that mediated India's linguistic heterogeneity and its need for a united front against colonial incursion. The novel played an exemplary role in this regard, 
providing a vehicle for the emergence of political aspirations, imaginative adventure, historical reconstruction, as well as a desire to document contemporary life. And um, do I, shall I just kind of stop? Because I have a section on the, on the, on the kind of, yeah. So I, I have a, just a few things on the post-independence uh, period, just a few points, and then I'll wrap up. I won't bring it to the present. Um, so it's um, another period of uh, a high, high nationalism, just a few points from 1920 to 45, witnessed several intervention in India's language question by political figures, uh, Gandhi, while the period after independence from 47 to 60, the Nehruvian era, witnessed socialist and Hindu revivalist arguments against the imposition of English. Ram Manohar Lohia, a prominent socialist, was a key figure in these debates. From 1908 to 1938, Gandhi wrote extensively on the issue of English education. Mostly, they were expressions of disquiet at the extent of its impact on the Indian psyche. In 1908, he categorically declared, the foundation that Macaulay laid of education has enslaved us. Is it not a painful thing that if I want to go to a court of justice, I must employ the English language, that when I become a barrister, I may not speak my mother tongue? English, as he saw it, not only distanced him from his immediate filial and fraternal context, but also created an impassable ba barrier between the educated classes and the uneducated ma masses. Loya's condemnation was more brutal. The English language, he thundered, helps cut the tongue and deaden the ear of 90% of the people. Uh, a some kind of secret learning or secret magic comes to prevail when people <coughs> use English, which is utterly incomprehensible to the people, as though they were listening to some charms and invocations of superstitious lore. The irony here of the oratic power of English, the harbinger of rationalist modernity, inverted to an inscrutable, irrational force when viewed by the masses is hard to miss. Uncannily, Gandhi too deploys the term superstition in his skepticism towards the rational claims of in English education. Of all superstitions that affect India, he caustically suggests, none is so great as that a knowledge of the English language is necessary for imbibing the ideas of liberty and developing accuracy of thought. Um, uh, 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 then, then there is a, 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 a long constitutional debate with the formation of the Linguistic Provinces Committee that, that, that goes on to um, kind of um, um, decide the, the linguistic um, and territorial breakup. And there are very in interesting constitutional debates, for instance. There is a co very interesting uh, 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 revelation from Ambedkar um, saying that uh, actually Hindi won the vote by only, Hindi won by only one vote in order to be uh, decided as that it would be one of the national languages. There are many interesting uh, debates there. So it was by, by no means taken for granted that that certain, you know, that, that Hindi and English would in some ways stand up there. And it was a constant deliberation throughout. And Nehru, in fact, was, was quite against the formation of, of uh, in the beginning, he resisted the formation of, of linguistic language-based states because of the, the, the shadow of partition and the shadow of further division. So there are very interesting um, uh, uh, debates that continue to, to, to um, um, impact on uh, the, where, the way the various uh, regions negotiate uh, the, its multiple relations uh, with other languages, with English and Hindi. Um, but I, I, I I guess I'm, I'm just going to stop there and, and uh, uh, you know, say that there is a, the whole world since the formation of the Sahitya Academy, since the formation, since the kind of entrenchment of, of English and entrenchment of Hindi since the satellite revolution, far more than Bollywood. Certainly the satellite revolution has entrenched Hindi, but has also in some ways helped the regional language worlds grow in, in interesting ways in its negotiations with Hindi cultural worlds and Hindi language worlds. That is an entirely different project and uh, that one can talk of. If you, if you have questions during question time, I'm happy to take up. But at this stage, I think I'll just stop because there's too much here. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.